0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, April was Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month. And today, we are going to be talking about that wonderful location of our body, the esophagus. And we're also going to be talking about what it does and what happens when something goes wrong. Today, we are joined with Dr. Christy Lopez. She is a gastroenterologist who was born and raised here, Pearl City High School graduate, went to Jabsom, and then went off to do her fellowship in Missouri, and is now back at Queen's GI Services on Punchbowl. And we're going to talk today about esophageal cancer. Why should we worry about it? What causes it? and what we can do to diagnose and treat it early and hopefully have a long, healthy life afterwards if we get it. Welcome to The Body Show, Christy. Well, thanks for having me. Now, tell me a little bit, the esophagus, we all think we know where it is. It's sort of how we swallow and how we get food into our stomach. What's the normal function of the esophagus? So the esophagus is a food tube
1: and basically it connects your mouth to your stomach and it actually uh, kind of propels your food from your mouth to your stomach using muscles and
0: things. So it sort of has this wave of contraction, almost like an hourglass. Right. So food gets into your stomach, and there must be some way that food stays in your stomach and doesn't sneak back up. Right. So we have something called our lower esophageal sphincter, and this is
1: actually made up of an internal sphincter in the food pipe or the esophagus
0: and as well uh, as your diaphragm. So it stays in there if it's doing what it's supposed to, and then your stomach digests food. It goes further down in the gastrointestinal tract. So if that's what the esophagus is supposed to do, what are some of the things that happens to it that result in it functioning abnormally?
1: Well, sometimes the lower esophageal sphincter... um The inner sphincter and the diaphragm don't actually line up with each other. And what happens with that is sometimes the stomach goes up above the diaphragm, and that's called a hiatal hernia. And when you have that hernia, it actually causes you to have uh, acid reflux, or that's kind of one of the risk factors of having acid reflux. The acid is supposed to stay in the stomach and help you digest food. But when it goes back up into the esophagus, you can feel some symptoms like heartburn or people think it's actually chest pain coming from a heart attack. So uh, that's what
0: happens when esophagus goes awry, I guess. And you know, for those people who think they're having a heart attack, they often go to the emergency room, they do all these heart tests, and they're told it's not your heart. And they leave wondering, what is it? It could be this hiatal hernia condition. It actually could be their esophagus. Right. Okay. So if that's what happens when something goes awry, how does acid get into the esophagus? You mentioned if the stomach is a little bit above the diaphragm, why would that result in acid going in the wrong place? Well, part of your stomach is actually above
1: uh, where it's supposed to be. And so usually the acid and the food and everything is propelled by muscular contractions going from the esophagus, to the stomach, to the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine. But in this case, the acid is going backwards, and that's called reflux. And so some people, when they lie down to go to sleep at night, the reflux is actually going from their stomach into their food pipe and they can feel that. And then when they wake up in the morning, there's a sour taste in their mouth or they're coughing at night when they're sleeping. Those are some of the symptoms of having acid reflux.
0: And that's something that you can treat both with medication and lifestyle things as well. Are there some factors that make someone more likely to have acid reflux and can they fix that without having to take a lot of pills? So, one of the big
1: things is obesity and um, having increased what we call abdominal GERD. So, um, simple things like weight loss and exercise, decreasing that abdominal fat can actually help people with GERD. And there's been some studies that actually show that that works better than PPIs. And what PPIs are, are called proton pump inhibitors. We also have medicine called H2 or. Uh, hydrogen-2 receptor blockers. And those are things like Zantac, ranitidine, Pepsid. The PPIs are called, um, or the names for those are omeprazole, prilocic pantoprazole, uh, Nexium. You might have seen commercials for these.
0: So you could take a lot of medicine, or you could also go ahead and work on weight loss. There are some other things I've heard it mentioned that can help, like, don't lay down after you eat, try not to eat a huge meal all at once, try and space it out throughout, throughout the day, and or uh, be careful wearing tight pants that might put extra pressure on your abdomen. Smoking is another one of those risk factors. So there are some things that actually can make it worse that you could modify on your own. Correct.
1: So we tell our patients not to eat three hours before going to bed. We actually uh, have a wedge pillow that we show our patients in the clinic that they can use this as part of their what we call lifestyle modifications. And when they lay down to sleep at night, they use the wedge pillow. Other things are, is propping up the head of your bed with cinder blocks. So putting uh, the patient at a 30 degree angle, those things could help
0: also. So what's the big deal about acid? I mean, so you have acid reflux. Is that a risk factor for developing esophageal cancer? Can that chronic acid exposure actually hurt me? Well, yes, it can, actually. So if you have chronic acid exposure,
1: what's happening is the acid is in a place where it doesn't, where it's not supposed to be. The body is quite smart in the fact that it actually tries to protect itself uh, by changing the lining of the cells. But in doing so, it's actually causing some precancerous changes, which is known as Barrett's esophagus.
0: And so that's when the acid actually damages that lower portion of the esophagus. And that over time could cause a problem. That's right.
1: And so um, when you're seeing your primary care physician or if you're seeing your gastroenterologist for colon cancer screening, um, I tend to ask the patients, are you experiencing heartburn or acid reflux? Ask a little bit more in depth questions about this if they are. And it might be a good time to actually
0: screen for Barrett's esophagus too at that time. So what would it feel like? I mean, if you had Barrett's esophagus, would it feel any different? Or would you just have that acid exposure? You can't necessarily feel that acid related changes we call it barretts but it's it's sort of this description of these acid changes to our esophagus does it feel any different than regular heartburn could someone say well i have heartburn but i always take tums so i can't have a problem because it goes away is that is it something you can sense physically or should you if you have a lot of heartburn Get it checked out to make sure you don't have that problem.
1: Yeah, so sometimes you can't feel it at all. Um, You might not know that you're having heartburn or you could have silent heartburn, but there are some risk factors for Barrett's, and and these are the questions that I ask. There are some risk factors that you can't change. So if you're a a Caucasian or white, um, if you're a male, um, if you're over the age of 50— those things alone just are risk factors for Barrett's esophagus. Then the other things we kind of already talked about hiatal hernia, long standing um, heartburn, reflux, those types of things. Family history of Barrett's esophagus or esophageal cancer are also things that we pay attention to when we're asking about Barrett's esophagus.
0: So if you get diagnosed with this esophageal problem, this dysplasia, this Barrett's esophagus, then what do you do differently? Obviously, you treat your heartburn symptoms. You work really hard on lifestyle interventions. Mm-hmm. But do you have to have it checked periodically? Is there a pattern of screening that you do? Yes. So
1: it depends on what we're seeing when we actually do the testing. And one of the testing is, uh, is an esophagogastroduodenoscopy. Or short for EGD. And what that is, is we take a camera that's attached to a flexible scope that goes down, looks at your food pipe, your esophagus, your stomach, and small intestine, and we concentrate on that area, the Barrett's esophagus area. We'll take biopsies of that area, and depending on what they see underneath the microscope, that will determine if and how frequent we need to repeat this scope test as well, too. And in addition to that, right now the current literature recommends being on a proton pump inhibitor um, lifelong for this.
0: Now, there's also some risk factors that have come about with the use of the proton pump inhibitors, those PPIs, the omeprazole, the Nexium, the Prevacid, all those ones we hear about. There are some risk factors associated with long-term use, like potential bone loss, issues with potential pneumonia, an increased risk if you're older. But if you're looking at taking those medicines because of a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, this potentially precancerous type of changes, then risk factors or or risks of the medicine or not, the benefit ratio is greater than just not taking the medication. Is that right? I agree. I agree, I agree with
1: that. Um, there are a lot of patients who come in and have heard the recent studies that have come out, associations with chronic kidney disease, as well as associations with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, we tell them that, you know, the, preventing the esophageal cancer is probably better than you know the possible associations because the Barrett's esophagus is going to be a known entity that we've diagnosed versus all the perhaps possibilities that there are out there.
0: Associated. So if you have this Barrett's esophagus problem or this precancerous condition, that's a known quantity. Right. You have that. Do something to fix it. It doesn't mean you can't do the lifestyle changes. It doesn't mean you can't quit smoking. It doesn't mean you can't do all these other dietary things. But taking the medication is pretty essential to really help reduce the risk of that acid getting out of the right place. Right, And I, that right place is in your stomach. That's right. Now, if you don't have Barrett's esophagus and you just have heartburn and you don't you don't want to take medication, that's when you do the lifestyle changes. You modify your diet. You do other things. But in that case, if you're really worried about your risk factors of taking the medicines, well, then change your habits and you might not have to. But once you get Barrett's, you can't mess with that. That's right. All right. Very good. Do all people with Barrett's get esophageal cancer?
1: Not all people that get a Barrett's esophagus, uh, progress to esophageal cancer. Uh, but screening and surveillance is very important. And so what we try to do is prevent people by using those proton pump inhibitors, uh, from transforming into esophageal cancer. And, uh, by screening patients if they come, or surveilling patients rather, uh, if they come every three or five years, looking at if there's changes or what we call dysplasia, um, is something
0: that's very important. So if not all patients with Barrett's get esophageal cancer, do some patients who get esophageal cancer not have Barrett's?
1: Yes, Uh, there are two main groups of esophageal cancer. Um, The one that develops usually out of Barrett's esophagus or is associated with Barrett's esophagus is called esophageal adenocarcinoma. And what that or that location is usually closer to the or bottom, what we say, of esophagus, closer to the stomach. Um, There is also uh, esophageal cancer, which is a a squamous cell carcinoma, and that's more associated with smoking and alcohol. And in our Asian culture, we also see people who chew a lot of betel nut, and that's associated with that as well, too.
0: So it could go really in either direction. If you get diagnosed with esophageal cancer, it's either going to be the adenocarcinoma or the squamous cell carcinoma. And is there a third type or it doesn't happen? Well, I don't know right off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of a different one other than those two. So if you've protected yourself from the acid exposure, but you still smoke and drink a lot and and chew betel nut, you may still be at risk for a different type of esophageal cancer. So be careful because it really is a matter of making sure that you're not putting yourself at an unnecessary risk. Now, when I think of esophageal cancer, I think of late diagnosis, really difficult treatment and extremely complicated surgery but if you can catch it early can't there aren't things done now that actually make it not the big scary diagnosis I think of from when I was in medical school, which was a long time ago. Right, so um, the esophageal cancer is
1: usually a very scary diagnosis. And um, before we had all this uh, surveillance and things for Barrett's esophagus, um, we used to have to do what we called an esophagectomy, where you take that large portion of the cancer out, actually pull your stomach up, and that create an esophagus that way. Okay. Before is what
0: I remember from school.
1: That's the before. Okay. Now we focus. (laughs) Now we focus a lot on uh, uh, prevention. So if there is a Barrett's esophagus with what we call high-grade dysplasia or a lot of changes that are moving more towards cancer, we will actually uh, ablate that or burn it off. So it's called radiofrequency ablation. And we can use these balloons or these paddles to burn the tissue such that it destroys that um, dysplasia and it prevents
0: actually the transformation to the esophagus cancer. All right, so so there's thank God there's more things we can do. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Christy Lopez. She's a gastroenterology expert at Queens Medical Center in the GI Services Department right at Punchbowl. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are the other changes in the treatment and diagnosis of esophageal cancer and how often should people really be worried about this. If you've gotten screened, if you've been told you're okay, and you don't have any symptoms, is this really a concern? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Christy Lopez. She is a gastroenterology expert practicing at Queens on Punchbowl in the GI Services Department. And she is a local girl having gone to Pearl City High School, gone to Japsom, gotten some expertise on the mainland and come back to help all of us to be able to stay as healthy as possible. And one of her missions is to make sure that we take care of esophageal cancer. Now, we talked earlier about the esophagus being the swallowing tube, leads right to the stomach. The stomach is full of really caustic acid because we have to dissolve our food somehow. And if that acid sneaks up in the wrong spot of the esophagus, that's a risk for developing some changes. We call those changes a Barrett's esophagus. And in some cases, that can lead to the diagnosis of esophageal cancer. But if you don't have heartburn, you're not out of the woods, there's a different type of esophageal cancer called squamous cell cancer that occurs in some folks who have a history of smoking or alcohol or betel nut uh, use. And this particular type of cancer, a little different than the acid exposure we just talked about, another type of cancer that we have to be concerned about. So Let's talk about some of the symptoms. We've talked about having symptoms of acid reflux, which is a risk factor for developing Barrett's, which is a risk factor for developing esophageal cancer. But if you actually have esophageal cancer of either type, what sort of symptoms might you have? So you might have problems
1: swallowing. Sometimes it can start off with swallowing pills, difficulty with swallowing pills, um, difficulty then swallowing solid foods, then progressing to difficulty swallowing liquids. And that's kind of the progression as the mass is getting bigger and bigger. Another symptom might be unintentional weight loss. So you're eating and you're just losing a ton of weight. Um, That might be one of the symptoms as well, Also,
0: Why would you be eating a lot and losing weight? I mean, is it because the cancer is using all your nutrition to grow itself, mm-hmm. and so it's burning all your calories?
1: Right. So I think with the with the cancer growing, it's also using up a lot of our, our, our metabolic stores and using a lot of the energy. And so um, we see weight loss despite trying to get our regular or normal nutrition.
0: Now, you talked about having trouble swallowing pills, and then it might go to some other types of things like liquids. Do you actually get that sensation of, like, fullness in your chest area? Could you feel like things just won't get into the stomach? Well, some people do describe it that way, like something
1: is just stuck there and it's not passing through. And in some instances, we do get called in um, for an emergency where things are Stuck in the food pipe, and we need to pull them out because they can't go um, into the stomach. the The mass or whatever it is is so big that it's not going to
0: pass through. So you've actually had this happen where you had to come in, do that procedure with the with the endoscopy, and actually take some solid object, whether it be food or whatever it may be, out of the esophagus because it can't pass through that pipe area or right. that narrowed area. So. If somebody gets diagnosed with esophageal cancer, what is the first thing? You mentioned that, you know, the old days where you actually have to take out the majority of the esophagus, pull the stomach up in the chest, that doesn't happen so much anymore. You mentioned early diagnosis, you might be able to do that radiofrequency ablation or kill those abnormal cells in that area and hopefully have normal cells grow to replace them. What else can be done if you get diagnosed with a problem and it's, it's large enough that you can't do that ablation. Do we still do surgery and take it out? Are there ways that we can help people so they can swallow again? Right. And so actually,
1: before we even get to the surgery uh, stages, we have this really great technology uh, for gastroenterologists to use called endoscopic ultrasound. And what that can do, it's a probe that's attached to the end of the endoscope where it can see where the mass or the tumor has gone. So if it's invaded um, down or if it's actually still in the top layer of the esophagus. And so if it is in that top layer, then we can actually use a technique called endoscopic mucosal resection or EMR. What that is a fancy word for is just kind of taking off that polyp uh, with a little lasso and burning that off. And if you do that and there hasn't been any invasion deeper, then you've actually saved the patient from a surgery.
0: Now, if it has gone past those layers, then you wouldn't be able to do that procedure. At what point do you have to go in and do a traditional surgery? So it it would be a, a, a staging type of thing.
1: So this, uh, the EOS can actually be uh, a staging tool as well. And also people can, uh, we use ultras I'm, I'm sorry, CT scans and uh, PET scanning and things like that. If patients are having trouble swallowing, we also have the ability to put in esophageal stents, and that helps to
0: open up that food pipe so uh, food can pass through. So When you mention the staging, so there's traditional cancer stages, one through four, one being localized, two sometimes is localized but a little invasive, three it starts to spread out of an area, and four it's actually metastasized or gone to other locations. Now that's a broad term of what we describe as staging of cancer. It's not specific to any particular cancer. But when we talk about esophageal cancer, what would be the rates of survival or the ability to survive an early onset, caught early, maybe do the ablation or do that mucosal treatment versus some of the later stages where it might be already
1: spread to other areas. So unfortunately, a lot of the cancer is still being detected in its later stages because people are coming in with more of the symptoms of difficulty swallowing and weight loss. And so at that point, we look at five-year survival rates or how many people have survived five years past their diagnosis and this is less than actually 20 percent which is why I'm so uh, excited about all of this new screening for Barrett's esophagus because we can prevent um, those things and we can actually try to get that five-year
0: mortality rate better. Now, you mentioned that the screening for Barrett's, so for, for when we talk about esophageal cancer, are most of them the adenocarcinoma Barrett's route, or are most of them the squamous cell?
1: Actually, um, in the United States, majority of them are um, the esophageal adenocarcinoma, that Barrett's route. But Hawaii is such a unique population, we have a lot of people that come from Asia, and a lot of the Asian population, uh, they have that more squamous cell carcinoma.
0: Any idea why? Is it a genetic issue? Is it dietary exposure? Is
1: it? I think it is a genetic issue, and then there's also that dietary exposure. There's also that association with the tobacco and the betel nut and, and things like that.
0: So other potential lifestyle factors, but there might just be genetics. You can't you can't change your genetics. Right. You're born that way. Right. Literally. Right. Okay. Now, when we're dealing with the early stage esophageal cancer. Do we have a great chance of long-term survival? You mentioned in the later stages, it doesn't necessarily look as promising. But in the early stages, what sort of survival might we
1: have there? I think the survival rates are much better off the top of my head. I'm not quite sure what those rates are. But I think that, um, you know, with the… Definitely better than 20%. Definitely better than 20% for sure. And we have a lot of technologies, a lot of medicine, uh, a lot of very good surgeons here that can help patients with that.
0: So some people still need to do a traditional surgery, in which case you would take out the area that's cancerous and you would reattach the esophagus that is remaining to the portion of the stomach if possible. If you can't do that, do we still need to do things like tubes into the stomach for feeding and those sorts of things? So some,
1: in some patients we do that. We put um, feeding tubes into the stomach um, And patients are able to get nutrition that way. Uh, sometimes our focus of care um, in these cancer patients are what we call, um, you know, quality of life focus. And so some patients just want to be able to eat and taste their foods. And so in that those cases, we tend to put in um, esophageal stents to try to allow them to have the meals and the, the food, especially here in Hawaii where we have all the good local kind grinds. You know, people really want to have that. And so we try to help them. That way, by putting in
0: stents. So the goal is to get someone to be able to eat, if possible. If they have a tumor that we can't necessarily treat optimally because it's spread or some other some other problem, we would do as best as we can to try and help them to still be able to achieve their goals of continuing to eat. Right, and I think each patient uh, is each
1: patient's care is going to be very different and individualized, and we work with everybody that way.
0: So, how often should we all worry about? getting our esophagus checked out. You mentioned that sometimes when people come in for a colonoscopy, you often suggest, hey, do you have any problems with the heartburn? Has this been something you've addressed? And really, it's an ideal time because, you know, you need to clean out your colon for a colonoscopy. You also automatically have cleaned out your stomach, and the additional time for the procedure is not that great, so that if you can proactively find something while someone is there for another procedure and do something about it, then that's a great additional service you can provide. Should anyone who has symptoms of heartburn for any particular duration of time consider being evaluated for esophageal cancer? And if so, what's that time? So usually we say, well, chronic
1: heartburn and reflux and, and greater than about 5 to 10 years is uh something that is on my radar in terms of hey we should consider screening you um and in addition to a- just having the heartburn and reflux, uh, looking at their other risk factors that we talked about. So Caucasian male age, abdominal girth, uh, need for use of acid-reducing medicines, family history of Barrett's esophagus or esophageal cancer. So all of those things, the answers to that kind of um, helped me make my decision to, to offer a, a, a colonoscopy as well as an upper endoscopy.
0: So in that scenario, you
1: mentioned 5 to 10 years, is that treated or untreated? So it could be both. Um, Hopefully, though, people that have had uh, symptoms for 5 years treated might, and they still have refractory symptoms or symptoms that are not um, uh, better with uh, therapies, and we would hope that investigations have already been done. But a lot of times I'm finding that they're not. People are trying different things and and have been t- just
0: changing medicines and they haven't undergone further testing. So if you don't respond to one medicine, you could try one other one. But if you still don't have any response, then really you've got to think about, as you as a patient being an advocate to say, okay, there's something else going on here, and I need to get checked out. And as a physician, you know, as a primary care provider like myself, if I see somebody who has reflux and they take medicine for 5 or 10 years, I still need to consider they could be at risk for having some changes in their esophagus. Even on the medication, they really ought to get checked out, particularly if they match those other risk factor profiles you mentioned. Right. I, I definitely agree. All right, well, I really want to thank you for giving us a really good heads-up information on esophageal cancer. It's not something I ever wish to have, but I also know that screening for it early is really the key because if you can find it early, you can definitely detect it and hopefully treat it early. I want to thank you, Dr. Christy Lopez, for coming on the show with us today. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast at Hawaii Public Radio and follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find Dr. Christy Lopez. She is a gastroenterology expert at Queens Medical Center on Punchbowl in the GI Services Department. Our engineer today is David Chung, our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we will see you again next week when we talk some more about health issues that could affect all of us. We will see you then right here on The Body Show.